It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hi, welcome to Vax Talk. This is a podcast for people who know that hashtag vaccines work. My yeah. name. My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here at Blankton's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And I'm really excited about today's uh, episode because we're talking to a woman named Dr. Jen Goldbeck, who's really one of the very few experts in social media and social media algorithms. And she's done all sorts of interesting work and has all sorts of interesting connections to the vaccine world. And, and she's pro vaccine. She's on our side, which is always the best. So I, I'm really excited to talk to her. Um, have no idea what she's going to say, Hmm. but it'll be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I've heard her before. I heard her on, uh, the lover leave it podcast and she was very dynamic and funny on there. So I'm excited to hear her. I'm, I'm sure she's really excited to be on our podcast too. Cause it's a, mm-hmm. it, it's a huge step up from love it's, it or leave it. Right. Right. Pretty much the same thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well let's, as long as we're talking about social media, we should launch right into around the web. Nathan, okay. you go first. Yeah. I wanted to bring up a study, a paper that was published, uh, earlier, let's see, published, uh, on the 25th online anyway, uh, which is in social science and medicine. And the title of it is knowing less, but presuming more Dunning Kruger effects and the endorsement of anti-vaccine policy attitudes. It is, I don't think that the entire paper is free. You can read the abstract. It, it is a, a nice thing to look at in that it is the, one of the, one papers that I've read where we, we talk about Dunning-Kruger, which is the idea that people who know the least about a topic tend to think they know more. Uh, and so that, that that's kind of a recognized thing. And there's been many papers written on that. But this one focuses specifically on it in the vaccine world and specifically about vaccine, poli- uh, vaccine policy attitudes. And the uh, lead author is Matthew Mata from Annenberg Public Policy Center, University of Pennsylvania. It is, um, some of it is what you'd expect. So they kind of, they did a bunch of surveys uh, and surveyed a bunch of things, um, it, it, particularly with regards to how much they, they did kind of a questionnaire on autism facts and found out how much participants knew about autism. They also did a survey on how, mu- how, how many of these people thought that they knew more about autism than doctors and scientists. And th- then they kind of took a look at then what did they think about mandatory vaccination policy uh, and, and, and things like that. What did they think about experts having a role in policymaking versus non-experts, including celebrities, <laughs> um, having a say in policymaking. The results are somewhat what we'd expect, but I do think that it, it, it drives a lot home in terms of what we see play out in the online world where we see people who clearly don't understand the material very well, making very broad sweeping statements about vaccinations or vaccine policy. Um, in this uh, study 
a third or so of people thought that they knew as much or more than doctors and scientists about the cause of autism. <laughs> a, th a third. 36% thought they knew more than doctors. 34% thought they knew more than scientific experts about the causes of autism. It was the overconfidence was highest among those that scored the lowest on the, the, the basically the quiz on, on facts about autism. Amazing. And yeah. And um, then that was associated then with opposition to mandatory vaccination policy. So the people who thought they knew the most actually knew the least were the most likely to oppose mandatory vaccinations and were the most likely to think that non-experts should play a role in the policymaking process. Oh so there you go. What do you think? Well, first of all, I think that study needs to be mailed to every single policymaker and lawmaker in the country, yeah, everyone. That that is a good thing to have in the back pocket if you're talking to uh, somebody, to talking to a lawmaker. Yes. Seriously, I mean that. I mean, I kind of expected something like that, but the scale of that blows yeah, my mind a, a little. A third was surprising to see a third yeah. of people think that they know more than doctors and scientists because this isn't just like they emailed it to just people who are already against vaccines. This was mailing. This was a generalized mailing i believe or, or survey anyway um yeah so that was that was surprising that's just it's unbelievable and it's really you know i kind of had a dunning kruger experience on the voices for vaccines facebook page this week we've got oh, yeah? um somebody um who has a, a gender non-specific name who was so i don't know if it's a he or she uh -huh. um who was who posted I mean, I think the wording was something like, um, vaccines cause autism, prove me wrong. Yeah, right, like, right. Um, that's not how this works. <laughs> that's not how this works. <laughs> so, so I did, but I pointed them out, that out to them. You know, that's not, when you make an assertion, it's your job to point to the the materials the studies the resources that support your position um but instead they came back and wanted me to disprove <laughs> so more you things. can't so you can't prove me wrong huh hmm, right. fail i know i'm uh you know i'm really interested to see what dr goldbeck says about dunning kruger and <laughs> Those yeah. experiences that we have with anti-vaxxers. <laughs> One thing that this brought to mind was um, there's a video that went out, or at least that I saw. I don't know how old it is, but it's our old friend Del Bigtree going on about in one of his high wire. Hi, tripwire, highwire, I don't know, videos. Tripwire. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know enough about the internet, I guess, to know what this show is. Is this just something that he shows to his friends? It looks like he's on a late night talk show host set. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> anyway, he's on this video and he's going on about, um, he's claiming that whooping cough if you're immunized, you're more likely to give whooping cough to other people than if you're not immunized. And then he takes that baboon study and basically mangles it. But what I was struck by in this context was how many basic factual errors he makes in like the first minute of that video where he calls pertussis a virus. He says that baboon studies are the gold standard in researching this kind of thing. He, there's some other things where it was like, you just, oh, he, I think he confuses Tdap and DTAP. He doesn't know the two vaccines. And yeah, sure, a lot of people don't. And you can make mistakes and whatnot. But to be able to get out there and make this video and try to make a scientific argument and 
just mess up the 101 basics of the topic, much less to have like an entire fake news show dedicated to this topic. That's amazing hubris. That's amazing Dunning-Kruger right there. It's stunning. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that, I, I mean, I think we could come up with a, a million examples, but it really, you know, in order to decide that the vast majority of scientists are wrong, and that you are right, you really do have to have some level of Dunning-Kruger working for you. Uh, and that's really, I think, pretty common among, among anti-vaccine people who decide, you know, that 99.9% of pediatricians who recommend vaccines, they're wrong because, you know, what, what do they say? They don't learn anything about vaccines in medical school. We're all on the take is really yeah. the thing i guess i mean that's why you're so wealthy nathan <laughs> right well i'm gonna go to my around the web which is a little bit more i don't i kind of feel bad about it because it feels like inside baseball okay. but but i think it also kind of um dovetails nicely off of what you were talking about mm -hmm. so we have an anti-vaccine friend and i'm not going to name him by name okay it's not Bill, Bill big tree i take it no. You personally do? By we, you mean you do or you and I do? You and I. Okay, okay. And he is um, currently undergoing cancer treatment. Um, oh, I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I really wish him the very best. I hope that he goes for science-based cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. But he is talking about our actual real friend, Dorit, who I will name. Mm-hmm. Um, because I want to. And he says, he starts off with blows my mind, which now you know it's not going to be good. So he says, Dorit posted on the Salt Lake Tribune post thread saying that none of the ingredients in vaccines are in amounts large enough to be toxic, that with some peripheral reference to Europe, measles isn't a benign disease, that it kills one in 1,000. What I didn't point out in my reply, which follows below... So he, he didn't actually want to talk to her about it, but he wanted other people to, you know, mm -hmm, sort of mm -hmm. rally around him, mm -hmm. is that while you may not like it, the mortality rate of 1 in 1,000 precisely falls in the definition of a benign disease. <laughs> oh, let me look that up. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the dictionary. The label is based on expect expectancy, and though deaths and certain com certainly complications do occur in association with measles, they're not expected. Quite the contrary. <laughs> Quite the contrary. Oh What's expected is an uncomplicated, efficient recovery. And then he goes on to talk about neurotoxins, and then he goes on to talk about, you know, plumbing and sewage systems, you know, saving lives. Right, because measles then, comes through water. Yep, yeah, and then he goes on to, to redo the math to say that it's really like three or four um, million measles infections every year. So that's mm -hmm. like, you know, one in 7,000 kids died, not one in 1,000. And then he says, remember, as does every parent who gives it studied thought and thoughtful study, that it is not the probability of severe vaccine damage that matters, as unknown and unpredictable as it is, but simply the possibility. Right. And it's, so, the, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, tell me your initial thoughts on that. I mean, it's, it's amazing that if it's possible, I mean, it's not. Right. But let's say for <laughs> argument's sake, it's possible that, 
vaccines cause autism and they don't um that possibility for some reason is more important than the possibility of a child dying from measles mm-hmm. uh I just, it just, that blows my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Blows my mind. The, you know, we talk about Dunning-Kruger, but what we're looking at here is just some really good cognitive dissonance that you can literally say in one post, it is benign something that uh, can can kill one in a thousand times or one in 7,000. That's a whole other topic. But just the possibility that this vaccine could do something wrong makes it extremely dangerous. Like there's <laughs> it's right. far less than one in a thousand uh, chance of anything bad happening from a vaccine. But man, it's uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. That's, that's, that's what we're dealing with. But then the, the flip side of this, and actually um, I, I saw a Twitter post on this as well. So I, kind of cheating and making two around the webs um the flip side of this is that uh that autism is so awful that chancing death is a a better outcome yeah there's a woman on twitter um i don't even archivist wasp Mm. is her handle and she said even if vaccines did cause autism i would still vax my child like yeah we can talk about how it's infactual that vaccines cause autism but let's also talk about how deep the hatred for autistic people goes that people would rather have a dead or sick child than an autistic one yeah so that's my other thought (laughs) oh absolutely i mean you see that all the time um and you see a lot of ableism in some in the you know the the anti-vaccine community there you see the worst possible portrayals of autism in mm-hmm. and and exploitation of it you you see it brought to a head in the like the uh, with Wakefield and the Alex I believe last name is Sportalakis case mm-hmm. I mean, you see some pretty horrible atrocities um, when and, and what what's what's really most difficult is some of them are autism parents and yeah. and how does an autism parent come to view their child that way is I, I, I understand that you go through a lot of periods when when your child um, has something that's unexpected um, and the more you know things that are more debilitating can be harder for families but some of the things that I see online I'm just shocked at how they can treat their child that way and exploit their child that way. Um, you mean like the Amazon shirt that said, you know, I'm proof that yes. autism ruins kids or something like that? Parading so. around a child in a shirt like that, that's basically making them, in, in, you know, basically calling them damaged or whatnot. Uh, I mean, it's one of the things that is, for any pediatrician, that, that's going to get our blood boiling the most, is, is, is treating people with disabilities that way. Right. And, uh, you know, just to make you feel hopeful, I just mm. want to turn this to something good. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in a, a closed Facebook group that mm-hmm. I'm not going to name, and I'm going to anonymize this as much as possible. Sure. But there was a mother in there saying that, you know, I'm having difficulties with my preschool-aged child. He's a difficult child. Um those of you with older kids, what advice can you give me? And almost every single person said, accept your child for who he is. And it was, I mean, I just read 
post after post after posters of post being like, oh, the world is okay. That, you know, parents of kids with disability, parents of autistic kids genuinely love their kids for who they are for the most part. And I think we lose sight in that beca- of that because I think we get lost in that, that anti-vaccine loudness that we really forget that most parents understand that a one in 1,000 chance of dying from measles is reason to vaccinate. Right. And that most parents cha- understand that an autistic child deserves love, not despite autism, but because they are who they are. Uh, so I think that's really important for us to remind ourselves of that. You know, it's interesting that you'll see in uh, on uh, an anti-vaxxer on Facebook say something to the effect of that everybody who's anti-vaccine is actually used to be pro-vaccine and then something happened to their child. They're... Yeah. Um, they are, I forget what term they use, but they're basically giving that implication that, you know, until it happened to them, that is just not the case. I have not mm-hmm. found that to be the case at all on either side. So yep. as a general pediatrician, I see a number of families with autism. They all love their kids. They're all fantastic to their kids. They are not doing these things that I see online in the anti-vaccine communities. On the other hand, I am a physician who also sees families that choose to not vaccinate or delay vaccines. I don't see all that many because, as I've said before, anybody who Googles their physician probably going to figure out real quick that maybe I'm not the one that they necessarily <laughs> want to see. But I do, and I treat them respectfully. And I, I you, you know, my philosophy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, I don't. Uh, I don't parse any words when it comes to telling them what I recommend, but at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm respectful in working on this relationship. None of them are not vaccinating because they think that the, because they have this, like a child became autism from vaccines belief. They have been, mm-hmm. they have been changed by information. They, they believe something that they have read. Maybe it does have an emotional experience. Maybe they heard from somebody or maybe somebody that they know has convinced them or had an experience, but no, like those two things are not the case on either side there. Um, the vast majority of parents really are um, just wonderful and doing the best that they can for their kids, regardless of their disability. And the vast majority of parents are immunizing, and if they're not immunizing, it's because of factors that I, I don't agree with, but I can at least try to see it from their point of view. They're not, they're not, um, yeah, fallen into some kind of conspiracy or anything like that. So don't let the don't let the internet make you think that that's how the real world is. So you know, one of the things I wanted to do before we bring Dr. Goldback on, um, mm-hmm. I think I'm just going to call her Jen. I'll ask her if I can call her Jen. Sure, you do that. <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about how important social media is to our own like personal Nathan and Karen experiences mm-hmm. in, in advocacy because I don't think we ever told a story all the way through about you know how we met and mm-hmm. and what that meant. Um, I, I started on social media in with vaccines because there were so many reasonable, normal people I knew who during the H1N1 pandemic were telling me they weren't going to get their children the vaccine because it was so new. Mm. And I, you know, after I had exhausted reading all of the news articles I could and going to the CDC pages and the Minnesota Department of Health pages, after all that had sort of like been gone through i went to the vaccinate your family page used to Mm -hmm. be called vaccinate your baby now Mm -hmm. it's vaccinate your family the next generation and um i i liked the how interactive 
it was, that it wasn't just passively reading an article, but it was something where I could ask people questions or I could get feedback or I could say, hey, is this right? And then, you know, people like you were there yeah. who had some level of expertise and, and you were accessible. And I really enjoyed that. And, you know, you talked before about how it was like scratching an itch, but I'm wondering how you chose Vaccinate Your Family in particular as a, a Facebook page to go to. I don't know that I could even necessarily tell you, except in that it was probably the most prominent pro-vaccine page uh, at the time, maybe still is. Um, so I think I just eventually got kind of hooked on to doing that there. I was on the blog too. I would do some arguing on the on their shot of prevention blog. Um, and I do less of that. I do less in general social media arguing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm much more judicious about I'm really only going to argue with people or, you know, have this discussion if I feel like there's some level of good faith discussion if I am not arguing with an anonymous Twitter egg, uh, <laughs> et cetera. Um, if it's not somebody who's shown a history of abusive behavior, doxing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that actually cuts down a lot of your potential candidates to argue with <laughs> if you have those criteria because pretty much everybody who's really going to publicly take on a um a a a strongly anti-vax stance they tend to either kind of hide their identity or act uh inappropriately it's 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 interesting um so but back then it was i a lot more people use their real names I, you know, I was using my real name, so I, I feel like there was less, almost less anonymity back then on that page than there is now. Like where now it feels like you're always arguing with with somebody's pseudonym, but back then it was yeah, <laughs> everybody had a Facebook account, uh, and we're using the real names, and so we were having these discussions with real people and trying to make progress, and and it was kind of I like I said it was like scratching itch. It was really fun trying to get to the root of where those those kind of thinking errors were or where the the bad information was um and so then yeah we started doing that and then we started to just talk about how come up with strategy you and me and a a small group of other rebels were trying to figure out you know what are what 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 resources do we have let's pool our resources and figure out what is what what do we have for standard responses to these common anti-vaccine tropes and all that and that got really fun to organize and and have kind of this uh this kind of unified front absolutely and now it seems like the internet and social media is so big and broad and sprawling that that's far more difficult to do but there's also a lot more people that i've met yeah so many cool people that i've gotten to chat with online and and be in groups with and whatnot that are experts in one way or another or just really cool people right it's it's pretty phenomenal yeah and i mean i never anticipated having friends from australia and you know the uk and um, Canada, especially, you know, who knew that I could be friends with someone who is Canadian. So that's right? that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of a cool thing too. But it also, you know, to break out of your little shell of you know USianness and yeah. see that vaccines are a, a global thing and that they have global importance and that you know countries that have vastly different healthcare systems than we have in the US still fully support vaccines. It's it's actually really 
it, just that fact in and of itself is really cool. And, you know, when I think about some global efforts that we're going through, you know, globally trying to eradicate polio, globally trying to eliminate measles, globally trying to eradicate rubella, and, you know, I, I've got a couple experts in mind to talk about some of those things in upcoming mm-hmm. episodes, but... You know, seeing that play out with getting to know people all across the world, it, it really makes me sort of love the whole social media thing um, on days when I might hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, when we uh, come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Jen Goldbeck. But before that, I just want to mention a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it's June, which means that Voices for Vaccines is doing its mid-year it's mid-year uh, fundraiser. And so if you are a person who listens to this podcast, giving us $10 um, actually goes a really long way in helping us produce this podcast. So you can do that at voicesforvaccines.org slash support. But if you're a person who likes this podcast but likes t-shirts better than donations, I just want to mention that we have some new t-shirts that I've prepared and we're offering for a limited time. And those are available in our cafe press store. And the purpose of them really is for you to have them in time for August, which is National Immunization Mm -hmm. Awareness Month, that you'll get to wear those t-shirts. And they're made for people across the lifespan. There's baby shirts, there's grown-up shirts, there's pregnant lady shirts. And um, there's, you know, shirts that are meant for teenagers. So everyone who's asking me what don't at me means, if you don't know, then you're you're too old for that shirt. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. You can wear it anyway. Yeah, you all can wear whatever you want. It's fine. So that's cafe. Yeah, that's cafepress.com slash voices for vaccines. Cool. So please, yeah, go visit those, buy a t-shirt. Nathan, if you want to pick one out, I'll send one to you as a thank you for being my co-host. Oh, wow. I don't know. If they don't make tall sizes, then t-shirts are kind of useless on me, I'm afraid. Oh, I can make one in a tall size, I Do bet. they have talls on Cafe Press? I will take look. A look. <laughs> I will take a look. You have to kind of look behind the scenes. Okay. Nathan is really tall. This is, I am leaving this part in. Nathan yeah, is an sure. extraordinarily tall person and I am a really short person. So when we're standing next to each other, it really does look, you know, that one picture that we took in Iowa really yes. does look like. I'm wearing, yeah, a, I'm wearing a big yellow sweater. And so it looks quite a lot like any like stock photo of the Sesame Street gang Big Bird in which and his Big Bird is standing behind and over them all. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's um, just th- imagine that as you're buying your cafe press shirt, that at least I'm not so tall mm-hmm. that, you know, my vaccine friends call me Big Bird. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and with that. And with that, when we come back, we'll talk to Dr. Jen Goldbeck. And I'd like to w- welcome Dr. Jen Golbeck. Dr. Golbeck, or I'll just call her Jen, I think. Is that okay, Jen? That's great, yeah. Okay. Uh, she is a professor and head of the social intelligence program at the University of Maryland College Park. And she is also the mother of five fully vaccinated golden retrievers. So welcome, Jen. Thanks. Uh, me and the golden retrievers are glad to be here. <laughs> so you were saying something about how your golden retrievers are especially social media savvy. What's that about? Oh my gosh. So their account is uh, the golden ratio four. That's their handle on like everything, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. <laughs> we have like probably 200,000 followers like across all the platforms. And uh, I post pictures and videos of their lives and talk a little bit about science and 
try to bring a little bit of joy into the world through the dogs. Well, that seems like the perfect use um, for social media, which leads me to my first question. And that is, what is the good side of social media? You know, it's a great way to connect with people that you wouldn't otherwise. I mean, certainly, like, we all have Facebook accounts, even if we don't use them much. And it's a place that you can check up, like, on old high school friends or relatives who live across the country. And that's fantastic. But I think a a way bigger benefit of social media is that you can find people that aren't, you know, right there in your neighborhood, right there in your family, to talk with about all kinds of things that you may not have in your offline social group. So it's this beautiful way to bring people together, whether it's, you know, talking about dogs, talking about science. Um, It's been really useful, for example, with people with rare diseases, where there's like no one in your community who probably has it. You could find people and talk to them about that. Um, Or even if it's just like your favorite sports team, right? You don't have to bother your relatives and friends who don't care. You can get together with a bunch of passionate people. So I think allowing us to connect around our interests is such a huge benefit. Absolutely. But there's, um, there's sort of an underside to that. And that's sort of where we come in. Um, Not that we're the underside, but being able to connect to each other. How has that formed sort of the anti-vaccine world? Yeah, it allows you to kind of avoid, even if you're not doing it on purpose, opinions that aren't in line with what you want to hear. And we certainly have all heard about the echo chamber problem we still really don't understand, like as a research community, how bad that is. Because it seems like people actually are seeing, oh, you know, say if we're talking about political news, stuff from both sides, even if they you know, tend to see more from one side or the other. Uh, but certainly with things like the anti-vaccine movement, with a lot of conspiracy theory stuff, science denial stuff online, you're able to find communities of people who will reinforce certainly the fears that you have, uh, the poorly founded scientific notions that you have, and kind of avoid the people who are going to call that out. And the anti-vaccine movement uh, certainly has been really good at that, at at creating these sort of isolated spaces where science-based objections are excluded and discouraged. I found you because I found your TED Talk on curly fries. Yeah. <laughs> so before I launch into some more questions, and I'm sure after you explain this, Nathan's going to have a ton of questions. I'm wondering if you can explain to our friends who are listening, what is the curly fry conundrum? So the TED Talk was about, you know, I gave that in the end of 2013, and it's still super relevant and and kind of is keeps coming around. And what I was doing in that talk was warning people about, all the stuff that we can find out about you based on the data that you leave behind online. And so the curly fry example um, is a study that came out of Cambridge where they looked just at the things that people liked on Facebook, which is interesting because you can't make your Facebook likes private. They're always public. And so they took this really narrow slice of what we did, but then they built some artificial intelligence that would use those likes as input and could predict all kinds of things about you, race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, behavioral things like drinking and drug use. They could tell if your parents divorced before you were 21, which still kind of blows my mind. Um, And one of the things that they predicted in there was, they call it intelligence, but it's a a score on an IQ test. And they could predict that pretty well just by looking at your likes. And they listed the likes that were strong indicators 
of high intelligence. Because you could think, well, the likes could really clearly communicate this, right? Like if I like the Jim Beam page, there's a good chance I drink alcohol. You don't need a crazy algorithm to figure that out. But it turns out that these algorithms use completely what seemed to us like illogical things. And so for intelligence, the four likes that were strong indicators of high intelligence were liking the page for science, which maybe makes sense. Smart people like science. Um, Thunderstorms, the Colbert Report, and Curly Fries. And you just go like, why? <laughs> like, like curry fries are great, right? But any level of intelligence, yeah, people like. <laughs> oh, says the physician. Yeah, they're freaking delicious. <laughs> but now uh, I'm feeling a little insulted because yeah. I don't know. I have. A, I could do a whole thing on curly fries and how nobody makes good curly fries. Oh, Nathan's well, not very <laughs> smart, so this is the case. I guess so. Uh, oh, yeah, man. but it's, I like thunderstorms. Right, thunderstorms are good. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like curly fries in a thunderstorm sounds like a great evening for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, these algorithms use what end up being these sort of little footprints that we leave up behind from our social interactions rather than logical connections. And it makes it really powerful for us to build algorithms that can find out all sorts of things about you. And uh, I won't get into it because I can talk about this for hours, but people can go watch my TED Talk and get some more creepy examples. And actually, you know, this is the work that Cambridge Analytica used, if you've been following the news. Um, oh, in fact, <laughs> I've heard the, of them. Yeah, you know, the guy who stole all that Facebook data for Cambridge Analytica, he got interviewed and they're like, tell us some research that's been really influential on you. And he says, oh, Jen Goldberg's research was really oh, influential. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't do evil stuff with our research. We're very into like consent and privacy. But uh, we built some of the first algorithms to do this in our lab. And it's now really kind of changing the world because you can find out all sorts of things that people don't explicitly say. So one of the things I'm kind of interested in and that we talked about in the first segment of this show is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, So this idea, and there's a recent paper that talks about how people uh, who kind of know the least think they know more uh, and how um, that affects, in in this particular paper, it talks about how that affects their outlook on vaccines. It specifically looks at vaccines and vaccine policy. How it, It sounds to me like that kind of effect is going to be amplified by social media and by these groups. Is that something that we tend to see in groups that that all are kind of like an echo chamber? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's sort of become a trope of how trolls are going to attack you online. Um, (laughs) So if you say, you know, here's a a pro-vaccine thing that I've said, and uh, I've certainly done this. I've had vaccine debates (laughs) online before. Mm -hmm. And... uh, yeah, I think I once argued with some guy about like whether the measles vaccine actually prevents measles. And <laughs> uh, I did give up after a while. But it's like they get one little piece of information or one little tidbit of science, right? Like, oh, you know, you c- how do you know that it isn't just that like measles became less prominent naturally? And that's, and mm-hmm. it just happens to correlate with when everybody started getting vaccinated. And it's like, gosh, you don't understand how this works at all, but you think you're way smarter than me. And, you know, I have a PhD, so I can talk to somebody like that. Um, But if you don't have a PhD, it's not that you necessarily think that they're right when they say something like this, but it's that you don't 
have the language or necessarily the tools to explain why it's wrong. And it's a really popular way, not just in vaccines, but in anything, to try to shut people down online, to sort of throw, here's one scientific fact or insight or keyword that I have at someone and insist that they respond to that fact. And when they don't, especially if they don't have the language, it kind of reinforces this effect, right? That you feel like, yeah, I am smarter than them because I got them on that. They didn't know how to respond. Um, so absolutely, these people who grab on to a few different facts or a few different studies and, and don't have the real scientific knowledge, which not everyone needs to have, um, but they absolutely kind of put themselves up as, you know, smarter than anyone else and try to shut down conversations with that. What you just described really resonated deeply with me <laughs> because I, you know, I don't have a science ba background. I actually was an English major and then I got a master's degree in English, uh, which means I have a lot of language and it's not hard for me to pick up language, but I kind of had to, and, and it was through social media, go through this learning curve of how to take on someone who throws out that one gotcha at you and, and and not get frustrated when it became one gotcha after another and, and a, a whack-a-mole sort of thing without succumbing to Dunning-Kruger myself. And, and I'm mm. wondering, I know that seems super common with vaccines on social media. Does that happen outside the sciences too? Oh, totally. Uh, I, part of my research, I study kind of the deep, dark, murky, terrible places online. So I kind of see this all across the spectrum. Um, you certainly see it with politics now, and not just in the U.S., right? So you look at, say, Brexit, right, which is something not as um, passionate for us in the U.S., even though we have feelings about it. And, uh, you know, like I've mentioned Brexit-related stuff, talking about privacy, right? Nothing to do with anything kind of even scientific. And people will start throwing out, you know, the one random fact they have about, say, funding to the EU. And, it, you know, the thing that it actually took me a really long time to come to is that you see this tactic deployed in every single debate online, and the people are not having an honest conversation with you. If you yes. manage to, say, diffuse that one thing that the measles guy brought up, they're not going to go, oh, okay, you're right. I'm sorry, I misinterpreted that. They're just going to come up with another one, right? Their goal is not to have a conversation and to be convinced. Their goal is to just shut you down or to wear you down or to make you look stupid and to kind of win by default. There's nothing that you can do to convince people who are being that person. And so if you're going to engage in that, you have to go in kind of with the attitude of, I'm doing this for other people who are watching, Yes. Or maybe I shouldn't do this at all, but not I'm going to win this person over because right. they they absolutely will not be won over. I have thought many times that when we look at social media um, over the last 10 years, that the kind of things that we're seeing now large scale or at least having discussions about large scale um, in terms of fake news and these echo chambers and Dunning-Kruger and et cetera, et cetera we kind of got that that the canary in the coal mine for that was kind of the vaccine debate or at least yes. one of them yes because the things that are happening now where people are arguing from positions of poor information was something that Karen and I were doing like encountering so much like 
10 years ago or so um, on, you know, when Facebook was relatively new and, and undiscovered territory and people were kind of figuring out how social media was working. Those were the kinds of conversations that right now, the parallels that I'm seeing now, I'm like, oh yeah, I, see, I can totally see this. This is, I, I've experienced this on that smaller kind of microcosmic level. Is that anything that you've encountered in terms of what were the early indicators or like harbingers of, of the current kind of state of the social media? Yeah, the internet or at least the web since 1991, has been a place where conspiracy theories have really been able to thrive. And, you know, we can certainly put the anti-vaxxers, especially the more extreme ones, into that category of conspiracy theorists who kind of reject all the well-established, reviewed literature in favor of these kind of crazy theories uh, about, you know, big medicine and the government being out to get them. It's a kind of classic conspiracy theory. But if you go back to the web in the kind of mid-90s, right, we're in the first years of the web, there was a ton of conspiracy mm-hmm. theory stuff on yep. there. And, you know, that was a thing where you had some technologically savvy people who knew how to make web pages who were also conspiracy theorists, and they were able to get that content up there when there weren't a lot of web pages. You could buy directories of all the web pages that existed at that point. And so you could find that stuff pretty easily if you were looking for it. And then as the web progressed into the kind of the turn of the millennium, we started seeing, you know, 1999 and then into the early 2000s blogs. Before we had real social media, there were blogs. And again, conspiracy theorists really thrived there. And, you know, not just the kind of vaccines are the stuff we're talking about now, but all sorts of things, flat earthers, faked moon landing, uh, plenty of Kennedy assassination stuff, any of the mainstream conspiracy theories that you know about were very popular on the web in those days. Mm-hmm. And the advent of blogs gave people who weren't especially technologically savvy the ability to start creating that content. And, you know, a lot of conspiracy theorists are really passionate that people need to learn about uh, that conspiracy theory. And so they started putting stuff up. Mm -hmm. And so it was really a natural flow from that into social media becoming a place where these conspiracy theories are hosted. And social media gave us a way where it wasn't just people who were you know, not technologically savvy could now create content, but anyone could really foster that discussion and share it and amplify it in a new way. And so on one hand, it's this really smooth continuum going from the very beginning of the web into the space of social media, Mm -hmm. where these kinds of conspiracy theories have thrived. anti-vaxxers kind of came up with that where you really started seeing a big movement in the anti-vaxxer space uh you know around this time where social media started to get Mm -hmm. big and so the two grew up together and so you really do see a lot of this happening and focused on social media and you know a lot of the major events in the anti-vaxxer movement have taken place on social media because of that so that we've kind of had a lot of like now i'm starting to feel like really bad about the internet do we have a little bit of do you you have a little bit of hope for us tell us a bit about what the good you kind of alluded to the good aspects of, of social media but how can how can social media how can it be a good tool in terms of providing good information, whether it's scientific or political or what have you, but particularly with regards to vaccine science? 
So the internet does have this power to help us share good information too. Uh, you know, while we kind of lament all the bad things that are going on online, because there are a lot of those, it also is a place where we're suddenly able to access really great information that we couldn't have before. And, you know, if we just stick to the medical space, you think about all the medical information that you're able to get now on the internet that you would not have been able to get before. It's really pretty amazing. And, you know, we all have those moments where we spend a little too long on WebMD and over search our symptoms and get really freaked out. But generally, we can find out a lot of stuff about really common issues that we might have, where before you would have to go to the library, maybe order information. There was a really limited amount of stuff there. Mm-hmm. It also has become a place where, uh, people can connect with other people and we've actually seen a lot of really good research about how powerful this is for people who have rare diseases where there may be nobody in the town or you know maybe one or two people in the big city that you're living in who have your condition which can be super isolating because you don't have anyone to talk to about it and you know there are tons of these rare diseases and the internet is a place where people who have that who are coping with it can suddenly get together with other people who are going through the same thing and talk about you know how it yep. feels talk about treatment options mm-hmm. where before they were kind of all alone and didn't you know often didn't have anyone to connect with about it even if you have a medical issue that's more common the internet becomes a place where you can have discussions and get feedback right. so you know if you get diagnosed with a gallstone which a huge percentage of the population has uh, sure like you can go google that but you can also find tons of people who have had gallstones and had their gallbladder removed and get their feedback about you know what the process is like and what you have to deal with and so it's a place where if you're nervous or you're worried about something you can find a lot of people to talk to and have conversation now of course that can go the bad way as we've seen happen with anti-vaxxers where you have you know i think reasonable parents who are just legitimately unsure about what's best to do mm-hmm. and kind of get sucked into this conspiracy anti-science space mm-hmm. but it also is a place where we can inform those parents and you know take care of some of their concerns and let them know that mm-hmm. it's all going to be okay and and what's a good idea so you know i don't think the internet is like all a space of bad terrible stuff there's a lot of good things that go on there too and you know uh I, some, on the flip side of that i always hope because sometimes i put youtube videos up on the voices for vaccines channel which people are probably hearing about for the first time on this podcast but it exists i'll put clips from the podcast or you know we uh some little videos that we make about people talking about things wait there's a we there's a youtube channel (laughs) yes um so i when i see like the suggested video is next i'm always like does does that mean that if you watch you know weird doctor in Arkansas who says that he can cure pertussis with vitamin C instead. Does that mean that the next suggested video could be one of ours? Is it possible you could get good information after bad? I don't know. Like, I I guess my question is like, where does the mix in that become beneficial and where is it harmful? Or should we just hope that that doesn't happen? So I think this idea about social media recommending content is so important. This is a a critical thing right now. All the major players are thinking about this. Uh, Google has certainly talked about this, that they know know, that there's a problem with anti-vaxxer videos getting recommended alongside really 
pro-vaccine, pro-science videos. And yeah, so could it be that your video would get recommended after someone watches an anti-vaxxer video? So basically it's the antidote. It's possible, uh, but right now, most of those algorithms don't know how to think about which side a video is on. So they won't know, oh, this is an anti-vaxxer video, but here's a pro-vaxxer video. What they're seeing is the keyword vaccines, and then they're looking at engagement. And the fact is that the anti-vaxxer movement, and in fact, most conspiracy theories, are able to make really compelling content because they cherry-pick things, uh, especially things that trigger our fear or excitement or engagement. They pick these things that are psychologically really well designed to draw us in. And so they can make these super compelling videos that people are going to sit and watch. And on the science side, we have not been as good about making content that is as compelling. Um, Part of that is just a nature of the beast. If you're promoting a conspiracy theory, you're kind of trying to manipulate people. And that gives you kind of the freedom to do some things that a scientist would not want done with scientific content. Oh, isn't that the Uh, truth? But I think it's a space that needs to be worked on on both sides that we need to get uh, the people who are creating these algorithms to do better and they're certainly thinking about that but we also need to think about how as content creators we make stuff that is as appealing and so it's going to get surfaced in those kinds of results um i just wanted to turn because i'm thinking about how we're talking about the algorithms and the anti-vaccine narrative i'm wondering if there's something that social media social media algorithms can tell us about people who are maybe what I would call vaccine hesitant, not vaccine, um, not anti-vaccine, not the real conspiracy theorists. But is there anything we know about people who are vaccine hesitant on social media that might be able to help us reach them? We don't really know what makes people vaccine hesitant. We, you know, we can kind of come up with some general characteristics and you might be able to make an algorithm that just looks at the kind of things that people say and how they interact and be able to tell those two groups apart. But I think what's more likely to be successful is identifying psychological characteristics that are common among the vaccine hesitant that are less common otherwise. So it could be uh, that these people may have higher anxiety levels. Um, So that's something in personality traits we measure as something called neuroticism, which is just basically a measure of how anxious or uh, easily upset do you get. So that's a trait that we know how to predict very well from social media. There's another personality trait called openness, which talks about your openness to new ideas. There's one called agreeableness, how, you know, how just kind of go with the flow, are you, or do you really argumentative? And those are things, you know, we don't know, at least I haven't seen it studied yet, but that may correlate with whether someone is vaccine hesitant or, you know, very pro-science. And so we can take a lot of these things that we know how to predict about people from their social media profiles, and we may be able to put those together to identify people who are vaccine hesitant. Um, If you can do that, then you have the ability to think about, well, what are the messages that are actually going to be appealing to this kind of group um, to bring them over to the pro-science side? And that's something that would fit pretty naturally in the algorithms that are already out there. This is the kind of thing that Cambridge Analytica was doing. They were using these sorts of personality traits to figure out what political messages would be appealing. You could do that in a non-evil way without stealing people's data and uh, figure out what kind of 
pro-science, pro-vaccine messages would be most appealing to these groups, especially if you're able to address the specific kinds of concerns that they have. So you're not just telling them, do this because science says it's good, but you can figure out, you know, what are the common things that these groups are concerned about and what kind of messaging can we use to show them the pro-science, pro-vaccine answers to those questions. Sounds like a great uh, research topic. (laughs) So my last question, Jen, is really knowing everything that we know about social media and everything that we don't know about social media, what can, you know, we've got two main audience members here, two main friends who are listening to us. One is your average parent and one is your average provider. What can, what are the best things that those two sets of people can do on social media to make even just a small difference when it comes to vaccines? I think the most powerful thing that people can do on social media when talking about vaccines is, you know, putting that good information out there. And like I said earlier, when we were talking, you know, I don't think that arguing is necessarily effective, especially if you really get into it with someone because they're not actually arguing. They're just trying to frustrate you and make you look stupid and kind of get their point of view out there. Uh, So if someone comes along and reads that, they see these very well tailored points from the other side that really ignore the science but that may sound compelling if you don't know that science yeah if you want to engage the best thing to do is like have really good sources of information there's a ton of them out there online Uh, i'm sure you all provide some of those Uh, have some good videos have some statistics at hand and put those out there as an answer to a question and then just leave it at that because you're not going to win an argument but if you have those really good accessible facts that are out there with citations and links that's the kind of thing where someone who's concerned and later comes upon the same conversation when they see your response that's going to get them engaged they're not going to care about you yelling or insulting the other person but if you leave some good information behind it's something that can be really effective um so that's certainly one way where, you know, if you passively come across this sort of information, you can engage in a way that may be helpful. Another one is to put out information about your good experiences with vaccines, because people who are concerned may be coming across a lot of negative stuff, because that's what people tend to share online anyway, is bad stuff. Uh, when your kids get vaccinated, like celebrate it online, put up good stuff, talk about how well they're doing, celebrate the fact that you can go to Disney World and not worry about them getting mumps. <laughs> Uh, you know, put out pro-vaccine messages from your own life. You don't have to make it up. Just talk about the positive ways that vaccines are impacting you, the choices that you're making, why you're making them. And again, that's going to be out there for people to passively pick up this positive vaccine message. And also if people go out looking and they see some of their friends are, you know, really celebrating vaccines, that's going to make them feel more comfortable. And so, you know, spreading that pro-message without the argument of someone who said something negative is still going to be really useful. Perfect. And I just want to mention, as long as you said that, that uh, Voices for Vaccines has our Why I Choose gallery, where it makes it really easy for you to share your story. Just a couple sentences about why you vaccinate and a picture of you and your glorious, beautiful family or your wonderful friends or just you. Um, so that's voicesforvaccines.org slash gallery is where you find that. Thank you so much for joining us, Jen. I, I really learned a ton from you and it was so interesting. And that half hour just flew by. I can't believe that was the whole interview. Mm-hmm. 
Um, if people want to reach out to you on social media, where can they find you? I know where they can find your dogs, but how about you? Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is on Twitter. My professional Twitter is Jen Golbeck, and my DMs are open. So you can just tweet at me or send me a DM. Um, or you can email me at the University of Maryland. It's jgolbeck at umd.edu. And uh, I have a lot of emails. I'm not the best email responder, but I will try to respond to anything that comes in. And I'm always happy to get messages. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks. And thank you all of you for listening. It was great having you today. My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician in Des Moines, Iowa. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle at uh, PedsGeekMD. You can also find me on Facebook or my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. Thank you so much.